one of the great blessings of uh, living in this part of, of the country and uh, in New England is to explore some of the surrounding beauty and uh, history uh, in, this, in this part of the country. There's so much to see. The charm uh, of the fall leaf uh, colors. Uh, at some point, I hope to see Acadia National Park uh, touring Boston with its uh, rich history. Uh, Cape Cod, such a unique part of the country. Uh, the beauty of the White Mountains in New Hampshire. I think one of the most attractive and uh, unique aspects are the many lighthouses that uh, riddle uh, numerous parts of the coastline. And, you know, from a distance, uh, lighthouses have uh, quite a charm, I think, to them. Almost a, a kind of romantic feel. Uh, there's a beautiful light shining on the waves amidst darkness. But then up close, they have, there's a kind of rawness to them. They stand there immovable, often on solid rock amidst crashing waves. And perhaps still today, certainly historically, what was their purpose? To communicate a message uh, to passing sea vessels. Not a message of charm, a message of navigation. Here you have a fixed point, a fixed light to help orient the vessel to where they are in reference to the land. And, And maybe even more than navigation, a message of caution. It's a message of Warning, where potential danger uh, lies. As we continue in the book of 1 John, this letter, a book that is centering on the person of Christ and the message of Christ and what it it looks like, what it means to follow him and orient our lives around him, John speaks about a message that has been revealed. And it is a message about a light. A light that we are to orient our lives lives around, so that we will be delivered uh, from paths of darkness. So it's 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. Let's give our attention to God's word. 1 John 1, chapter, or verse 5. John continues and he writes this, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Though John is fully aware, as he writes, of outside threats to the church, we considered one last week in the opening verses and the surrounding context in which John is writing in the culture, Gnosticism. Or polytheism, the belief in many gods. Or persecution for the church. What John does is he turns immediately, at the beginning of this letter, to not external threats, but internal ones. An internal threat. 
This is an issue and a threat that if the next generation, as John is writing in the latter part here of the first century, if this next generation of Christians is going to flourish, if they're going to succeed, they have got to know how to navigate this threat and this challenge. And that is the reality and the threat of sin. Here, John, the last apostle living of the twelve, at the time in which he writes here, a mature, elder believer in the faith. He has walked with the Lord for many, many years. He knows, not only from instruction and from God's Word, but by his own experience, how you understand sin matters tremendously. How you relate to sin. How you are to be restored from sin. How you live with the ongoing effects of a sin nature. All of it matters tremendously. To drive this point home, it's quite striking that in a letter made up of five chapters, a total of 105 verses, don't count them, but I think that's what it is, 105 verses in total. Here, a letter, which we've already got the sense of, centers on the person of Christ, what it means to be a Christ follower, to walk in the light, that his closing words, the closing words to this letter are these, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. That's the end. It's a way of saying, central to the Christian faith is looking out for, being vigilant, and ridding our hearts of idolatry. Idols, idolatry, are not mere Old Testament concepts, clearly. It is central to growing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. I think about the main character in Pilgrim's Progress, Christian. Sin can feel, idols can feel like a very heavy burden at times on one's back. Very heavy. What do we do with sin? How do we effectively live with an old sin nature still living within us? The well-known actor and uh, film director Woody Allen, who claims to be an atheist, uh, was once asked this question. If there is a God, and if that God should speak to you, what would you most want to hear him say? He said, if there is a God who should speak to me, I would most want to hear him say three words. You are forgiven. And I think John here is saying that the only way one ever hears or understands the words from God, you are forgiven, is if they first see and understand the words, I have sinned. I am a sinner. And the only way we know what idolatry and sin looks like is because there's something other than idolatry and sin which makes it known. The way we know darkness is because light shines in the midst of it. As a picture or illustration... In the midst of darkness, the way we know there is grave danger for that vessel nearing the crashing waves of the rocky coastline is because a lighthouse shines to make it known. And so we see here in the text that before John addresses the matter of sin, represented by the metaphor of darkness, what does he do? He tells us what is light. We can't know what darkness is or sin is without knowing what light is, and that's what he does in verse 5. He says, this is the message we've heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. 
So before John addresses sin or idolatry or darkness, he establishes what is light, what is holy, what is good. If you're lost at sea or you're lost in the desert, you need some compass, some fixed point to navigate your way out. That's what John is giving us here by these words, God is light. And it's really remarkable, if you reflect on it, of all the things that John learned directly from the Lord Jesus as one of the apostles, it's the fundamental character of who God is that he is making known and passing on. He says, again in verse 5, this is the message we heard from him. This is the message that we learned and we got from Christ. And we're proclaiming it to you. So central to the message that John and the apostles received from the Lord Jesus is who God is. God is light. To deal with sin, to deal with morality, we've got something absolute here, something fixed. God is light. What does this mean when John says God is light? Some suggest this is a description of the visible manifestation of God's glory. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Others suggest this is a reference to God revealing himself to people. Light enables people to see. These two suggestions are true, uh, true about, uh, in, in Scripture. But in the context here, it's most likely referring to God's moral perfection. When we read those words, God is light, that's what the context is. John is addressing sin, immorality, idolatry. And he's saying there's none of that in God. God is light. And it's reinforced by him following, up, follow, following it up by saying, in him there is no darkness at all. It literally reads, it's a double negative, there's no darkness in him, none. To emphasize the purity of God. There's no hint, no stain of immorality or sin in God. How significant that is, we know. In our own lives and in society, what happens when one departs from the moral light or compass of God? When society no longer orients or less and less orients its morals and ethics around that light, what happens? Marriage is redefined. Gender and identity are choices, options based on a person's preference. Financial stewardship and contentment in life is replaced by the celebration of covetousness and materialism. Consumption becomes an idol. Homosexuality, transgenderism, not only defended, but celebrated. Life purpose is no longer objective. It's whatever you want it to be. The creation, the environment, becomes an object of worship rather than the Creator Himself. In innumerable ways do you see what happens when the moral compass of God, when the light of God, is no longer foundational. Of course, John is not addressing society at large. He's addressing us. He's addressing the church. What happens when the professing Christian is no longer looking to the light, to God, to the Word, to define his life, his purpose, his way of living. They get swept up by the culture. In this month's edition of the Christian publication called First Things, one author writes this. 
Too many people who claim to be Christians simply don't know Jesus Christ. They don't really believe in the gospel. They feel embarrassed by their religion and out of step with the times. They may keep their religion for its comfort value or adjust it to fit their doubts. It doesn't reshape their lives because it isn't real. And because it isn't real, it has no transforming effect on their behavior, no social force, and few public consequences. Their faith, whatever it once was, is now dead. The Christian must keep his eyes, her eyes, upon the light of who God is. The light of Christ, his word, so that what is driving that person in life, what what fuels their motivations for living, what defines their purpose, all things are oriented around God and what he has made known. God is light. If God is light, if God is moral perfection, and we are sinners saved by God's grace, what John does is identify three very dangerous paths to avoid in relating to our sin. God is light. We are sinful. How do we relate to that sin, that old sin nature? If you look at the text, I didn't come up with these three. John makes this very clear in the way he breaks out the passage by the words, if we say. If you look at verse 6, 8, and 10, he repeats those same words. If we say we have fellowship with God, verse 6. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, and a third time in verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, You've got three faulty professions or three dangerous paths to consider and to avoid, to be aware of. So the first one is in verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him, with God, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. He doesn't use the word sin, but just as light represents moral perfection in this verse, uh, darkness represents sin. Just step back for a moment and realize again and pay attention to how much John is addressing the subject of sin throughout our text that we've uh, considered here. It's everywhere in the text. If we say we have no sin, if we confess our sins, if he forgives sins, if we say we've not sinned. So we need a grasp on this subject of sin. Sin is not only transgressing God in thought, word, or deed. It is that, but it's more than that. Because sin is a corruption. It is alive. Sin is alive. Because it's part of a person. The, what, uh, what Paul identifies in Ephesians 4 as that old man, that old self. Sin is alive. Alvin Plantiga calls it a cancer because it tends to reproduce itself. You see this very much in family dynamics, one generation to the next. Uh, Children or grandchildren might uh, take on the behavior that they saw, sinful behavior that their parent or grandparents uh, lived out. They observed it, they saw it. It starts to become a part of them. But it's not just within families, it comes from without as well. So it's alive, it's dynamic, therefore. Our confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith, reminds us that while the old nature has been put to death, it has been crucified. Quote, there still abides some remnants of corruption. 
there still abides within us remnants of corruption. We all have those remnants within us. And that corruption is insidious. It is stealthy. It sneaks up on us. It's not merely the outward obvious sins of murder or adultery, fits of rage or theft. It rises in the most unexpected times and ways. Someone might express appreciation for the service that you gave, the ministry you offered. And in in reply, you not only express thanks, but you begin to think to yourself, yeah, that was a pretty good service on my part. In fact, I I feel kind of gifted. Actually, I'm kind of a cut above the rest. Or you're in a Bible study. Uh, This has happened to me, a prayer gathering, perhaps. And others are making important points. They're offering prayers of real substance, and the thought enters your mind. What important point can I make? What articulate prayer can I offer that people will hear and be impressed? Pride. Innumerable are the ways that idolatry and sin will kind of creep up from within. Where does it come from? And so what John does for us in putting sin on the table is to make very clear we all have baggage. We all have baggage. Sin we've committed in the past or present, sin that's been committed to us, that has created wounds. And sometimes that baggage is heavy. And so the first path to avoid here that John is identifying is what I believe is hypocrisy. If we say we have fellowship with God but but walk in darkness, if we, we don't practice the truth, we lie. Now, very important to note here what hypocrisy is and what hypocrisy is not. Hypocrisy is not a person who commits sin or struggles through sin. That's a Christian. Okay? A Christian who commits sin or struggles through sin is a Christian. The hypocrite is the one who says they don't sin when in fact they do. It's not failing to live up to the moral law of God. It's saying you do live up to the moral law of God. When in fact you do not and you cannot fully. That's why the hypocrite is is an actor. One who claims to be in the light but is walking in the darkness. And that's a key word, walking. He doesn't merely fall into sin. He's walking in it. He's got a path of life here while professing to be in the light. He lives one way when gathered with the saints, another way at home. Maybe one way at home, another way at work. Living multiple kinds of lives. John says in verse 7, As we seek the light, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from sin. That is, when we seek the environment of light and godliness, and worship and the word and prayer and fellowship... It's there that we experience progressively more and more cleansing and sanctification. So first path to avoid there, to be be aware of, hypocrisy. The the second path to avoid is in verse 8. Again, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Notice now, the first person, the hypocrite, was aware They're walking in darkness while claiming to be in the light. 
But the second person is unaware. They're deceived. John says they claim to be without sin, deceiving themselves. What does this mean? They claim to be without sin. It could mean the person doesn't actually believe sin exists. Some suggest this. Uh, That would be somewhat popular in our Western world today. Through uh, Freudian psychology, denying any objective basis for guilt. There's no sin. There's just people who misbehave or behave in ways that are unhealthy for themselves or those around them. But, but God doesn't exist, so there is no objective guilt. There's no sin. It doesn't exist. But likely, John is saying, this person believes they have no current sin. In a way, we could say they believe they've eradicated it, at least for now. So if you were to ask them, do, do you have any sin, they, they might be deceived into saying no. They're, they're unaware of any sin. This is more dangerous than the hypocrite. Because the hypocrite at least knows they're leading two lives. This person is deceived. And a deceived person sees no need to confess sin or be cleansed. I think about those, those words you hear from your, your GPS device, your phone, when you reach your destination, right? You have arrived. This person is deceived into thinking they have arrived. So dangerous. They're essentially sleepwalking through their faith. Likely, none of us would claim to be without sin. But we can tend to start living in this kind of way, in this uh, deception. It's easy to live offering our life of worship, a life of prayer, a life seeking to meditate on God's word, a life of, of service. And all of that is good, godly. Biblical, but all those things absent of confession is going to stunt true growth in Jesus Christ. That is a key element in Christian living. And that's what John is is pointing us to. Where there's little self-examination, there's often little confession. If we could choose between being a patient in the hospital... And being a visitor of a patient, I know what every one of us would choose. But John is reminding us here, growth in grace requires us to be and see ourselves as patients. In need of surgery, in need of work, in need of God's cleansing grace again and again. The remedy John gives is coming. But there's one final path to avoid, he points out in verse 10. He says in verse 10, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This person isn't claiming he's without sin now, but likely he's never sinned. This, it seems to me, is the most serious of all. This person is not merely deceived. I would say they're spiritually blind. They're blind. They have yet to come to a knowledge of their own sin condition and need for a Savior. We've heard people's testimonies. It may be true of some of us. uh, Maybe growing up in the church, we heard the gospel. We heard uh, the word of God week after week. But but then it was years later that that we were convicted by our sin and we came to saving faith in, in Jesus Christ. 
Well, all those years, there was spiritual blindness. Until there's a conviction of sin and a a need for a, a Savior in my own thinking and heart, I'm blind. That may be the category that that John's identifying here. I, I love the Lord, but I don't, I don't see a need for repentance because I don't see sin. Uh, the Christian life is a, a sanctifying journey. It seems to me it consists of ever kind of heightening mountain peaks up, and up and up. Up and up because biblically, sanctification is progressive. He who began that good work is going to carry it on to completion. By definition, sanctification is growth in grace. The Lord grows his people. Sometimes we're standing at a peak in the life of faith as well. We're filled with joy. Obedience is a delight in our heart. But sometimes the descent is a rugged battle with sin. The valley sometimes is a long time. We feel the weight, the guilt, the struggle with sin. There's a place for that in the Christian journey. So what do we do with sin? And this is that wonderful, memorable verse, verse 9. That's the remedy, and that's what I hope we, we cling to. Uh, this morning, verse 9. The answer, don't deny sin. Confess. Confess sin. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let us not overlook the remedy here for sin. John does not say the remedy for sin is to just stop. You know, the counselor who doesn't know what else to say, just stop doing what you're doing. Stop thinking that. His answer here is not, gut it out. Ignore it. It'll it'll go away eventually. Or clean, clean yourself up. Yes, by God's Spirit, He is growing the saints in holiness. Where perhaps pride had a grip, humility is taking more and more root. Where lust was a daily burden, something more and more glorious, the presence of Christ is filling the heart. Where a sense of control over others once defined uh, one's life, now meekness, considering others before self, is growing. It's a growing desire. Yet no one is without sin. And no matter how holy one may become, sanctification is not the ultimate remedy for your sin. That's not what he says. Confession and forgiveness. Confession and forgiveness. If we confess our sins, he says, if we confess our sins, every week we gather here and we participate in a prayer of confession. Many of us get on our knees for that. Sometimes it may be difficult to uh, focus in bringing to our minds the, the, the sins that we've committed. We don't see them all. 
But not only in that time are we acknowledging our sin before the Lord, but we are corporately reminding ourselves of something we all have in common. We are sinners in need of grace. And we do this not only because it's biblical, but because sin flows most where it is kept private. In that small recess of our heart, where we really don't even want to bring it to the Lord. We don't know what to do with it if we do see it. What did Adam and Eve do when they sinned? They hid themselves from the Lord. But then the Lord comes graciously with questions. Where where are you? He says. I hid. I feared. I saw my nakedness. My shame. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord's drawing out, I think, Adam's own heart to see, so that he would see what he has done, so that he would acknowledge that's part of what confession is doing, to see and confess his sin, therefore, to rest upon the remedy for sin, the grace of God. And what does the Lord do? We're told he provided them garments of skins and covered them. Garments of skins, animal sacrifice, the shedding of blood. People connect this to the idea of of atonement, covering, the, the covering for sin. God deals with our sin by calling us to himself. Come to me. He calls us to Calvary. He calls us to the cross where our Savior bore our guilt and sin upon himself. There is no sin great enough or deep enough where God's grace is yet deeper still. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you. Full of pity, love and power. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. In the arms of my dear Savior, oh, there are 10,000 charms. Come, ye thirsty, come and welcome God's free bounty, glorify. True belief and true repentance, every grace that brings you nigh. Come, ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Feel him, Christ, prostrate in the garden. On the ground, your maker lies. On the bloody tree, behold him, sinner. Will this not suffice? Venture on him. Venture wholly, completely. Let no other trust intrude. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. Let us pray. O Lord, indeed, we all carry the the weight of sin. We all have the remnants of that old sin nature, those of us who are in Christ. Lord, perhaps there are some here who have not bowed the, the knee to you and your saving grace, who have not seen sin, that, that indeed we are transgressors of you, that this sin is a corruption. And yet there's a, a wonderful, glorious remedy for sin. You who knew no sin became sin for us. 
that we might know your righteousness. Oh Lord, would we not only know the reality and the conviction of sin, but would we cling to you? For in you is our sure refuge. How we thank you that you walk with us, even in those deep valleys. Lord, protect us from deception, from hypocrisy, from these paths that are destructive and are dark. Shed more and more the light of your grace upon us. Lord, help us to carry one another's burdens. We are fellow sojourners, fellow pilgrims on this journey of faith. And how we praise you most of all that we have the chief shepherd, the good shepherd who laid down his life for us, who guides us in paths of righteousness. Uh, To him be all glory and praise. For this we pray in his name. Amen.